Hey, uh, once again, very special welcome to you, uh, particularly visiting um, our night service. It's a great joy and blessing to have you here with us. Uh, I have the great distinct privilege to introduce you to you, to, to you, to, 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 to you, to you, to me, I mean to you, Nick Coombs. Hi, Shabu. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Hey, Nick, what's your full name? Nicholas Stephen Coombs Third. Okay. I'm joking about this. Oh, okay. I was just, does the Stephen mean something? Like, is it... He was actually the first martyr, but I was not named after him. Okay. I was named Stephen because it was a name that was going around at the time. Okay. Sweet. And it became my middle name. You should stick with the martyr one. That's a bit more better. Okay. Next time we do the interview. All right. Next time. Um, so I've had the privilege to know this guy for quite a while. I remember meeting Nick for the first time. Where there's a church called City on a Hill. You may have heard of it. A City on a Hill is led by a wonderful man by the name of Guy Mason. And Guy and Vanessa started... The church plant in their lounge room, it grew, it started, they went into a pub, and now it's meeting all throughout Melbourne in different regions in cinemas. God is at work. We love City on a Hill here at Canterbury Gardens and what God's doing there. I remember Nick first joining staff there, and there was this really skinny-looking dude. He's buffed up a little bit more now. Um, I looked like I was 12 at that you time. You did, yeah. Now I look like I'm 16, so yeah, there's, yeah. there's some level of growth you, there. You have, yeah, that's yes. true. Yeah. Um, mate... Um, how long have you been at City on a Hill? I've been there for eight years. Okay. Uh, and so I went when we were in the, in the pub days, and it wasn't yet called City on a Hill. It was called Docklands Church, because right. we were in the heart of Docklands, which uh, hasn't come on in leaps and bounds so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then after I'd been there for, must have been about six or seven years ago now, that we moved to Melbourne Central, yeah. to the Hoyt Cinemas which is where we've been meeting. And when you went to City on a Hill, did you go on your own and you met someone there or what, what happened? No, I had a, a wonderful girlfriend uh-huh. who accepted my proposal to become my wife and okay. so is now my wife and we've been married. Jules is her name. She's beautiful. And we've been married for six and a half years and about 16 months ago, we had a baby. Yeah. Uh, and he's the cutest boy in the world. We'll see him later, actually. I, I have a He photo. is very cute. Uh, what's he his is. name again? Axel. What's, what's with the name? I was, I was curious. It's, it's short. It's strong. Uh, that was about it. Okay, cool. It, it's got an X in it. Okay. All right, that's good. Yeah, we, we're very superficial. Super- <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Um, so, bro, it's been a joy watching God's work at City on a Hill and how it's been growing. Uh, and now uh, there's uh, campuses in the city, uh, west campus, is that correct? Geelong? Yeah, a, a site or a, a site, church. So, thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Site. Um, where is God leading you and Jules? Um, yeah, where's that going to be? Yeah, so there's been, there's four City on a Hills now. One in Geelong was the first and then in High Point Cinemas, which is kind of northwest uh, of Melbourne. Uh, and then last year we planted one in Brisbane. Mm. And the fifth one, me and Jules have the privilege of leading and we are kind of at the moment, just gathering a core team to plant a church in the Chadston area, east southeast okay. of Melbourne. So, so it's um, exciting. We at Canterbury Gardens love the gospel is spreading around Melbourne, and so how how can we be involved in that? In what ways, whether if it's prayer or other ways, what comes to mind? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, I'd love for you guys to be praying. I know this church particularly has a rich and deep history and uh, been very fruitful and faithful in raising up Christians and sending them out. Um, and so I'd just love your prayers. We'd love you to join us in praying that uh, God would do something 
great. Uh, I, I've been reading about revivals in Melbourne 110 years ago, uh, sweeping across Melbourne. Uh, I'd love you to join me in praying that God might do that again uh, and just see many men, women and little ones come to put their trust in Jesus. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. Awesome. Well, friends, we're going to hear from God through his word, through Nick. Um, so listen up. Over to you, man. Thanks, you. Shabu. It's all you. Let's put our hands together for Shabu while I start looking at my notes. <laughs> friends, th- thanks so much uh, for having me. Uh, thank you, Beth, for your testimony. The projector has just broken. But yes, Beth, that was a beautiful testimony and complimentary, I think, to the text that we're going to be uh, looking at tonight. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to be tonight in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, at the back end of it, chapter 11, verse 8. So if you do have your Bibles, your smartphones, or your Hebrew papyrus, uh, feel free to get that out and join me in Ecclesiastes. And while you're going there, it would be good for you to know a bit of background, because we're tuning in at the last kind of section of Ecclesiastes. And so, as we know, we want to know the context of uh, the passage. It's good to know that the book of Ecclesiastes is written by a guy called, labelled The Preacher. Uh, a lot of people think that that's Solomon. Uh, if it is or if it isn't, whatever the case, the person writing is certainly wanting us to see the experiences recounted in the book of Ecclesiastes through the eyes of King Solomon, who you may have heard about as a prominent Old Testament figure. And the book was written because Solomon lived his life, the preacher had lived his life with kind of no real needs. He had all that he needed, all that he had, all that he wanted. Uh, He was the king, great power, great influence, great amount of money. People who he would say jump, they would say how high. He had all that he could ever dream of and yet he was still not satisfied. Still he was thinking about the meaninglessness of life. He would look around and see that the same things happened to those who were white-collar and blue-collar, rich and poor. The same things would happen to all different types of people, the same sufferings. The life was hard for those who felt like, looked like they had it all together and for those who looked broken and down and out. Life for both seemed difficult. And so he talks all throughout the book, saying, "'Vanity of vanities, all is vanity.'" Life is meaninglessness. And we're going to dive in uh, at the back section of this book uh, where he gives a bit of a reflection about life in general, in its totality, how we're to approach the fact that even in the midst of this meaninglessness, we're all getting a little bit older. And so we're going to catch up with him at the last part of his reflections. Uh, I'd love, before we do, to pray together. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great opportunity it is to uh, open up your word and know that uh, this isn't just speculation about you, but your revelation to us. And so I pray that you would do something great. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have gathered here tonight uh, as people who want to hear from you. And so would you speak? Lord, we thank you. God the Son, we thank you that you have come as the final word, the last word spoken into the world. Would you be big? Would you be made as bold and as beautiful as you really are through this message and in our hearts tonight. And Holy Spirit, would you come and empower us to hear, to listen, and to respond. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, let me begin uh, by introducing you to a guy named Peter Thiel. His photo is going to come up on the screen. There he is. You may uh, have heard of Mr. Thiel before. You may not have, but you've probably been impacted by him. He was one of the founders of the company PayPal. 
And he's also one of the very first investors in Facebook. He's that guy, if you've ever watched the movie The Social Network, that gets convinced by Zuckerberg to finally invest. He's the very first investor. And he's written a couple of popular business books. But he is, what he does with his time, he's a venture capitalist. And so he finds things to invest other people's money in, and then he gets a little bit off the top. And so he is uh, committed to solving some of the world's biggest problems. Some of those problems are quirky, like he started a fellowship to help people drop out of college and become the next Mark Zuckerberg, uh, or he's committed himself and started investing in creating the world's first floating city so that it would be out of kind of the hands and the influence of earthly governments. Uh, so some quirky problems. But while we, you and I might be focused on what we're having for breakfast tomorrow morning or what that, that project that we've got due at work during the week, the job coming up, the person who hasn't yet paid us for the job that we did do, those kind of problems, this guy's focused on massive problems. And the biggest problem he's focused on defeating or answering or solving is the problem of human ageing. The problem that we get older. In a feature piece in The New Yorker written in March, it was titled Silicon Valley's Quest to Live Forever. Uh, the writer kind of did some research into this whole movement of these kind of Silicon Valley bigwigs and influential people and celebrities getting together to work out how to solve the problem of human aging, how to solve the problem of death. And he chronicled this in his article, and then he came to the end and he made this conclusion. I'm going to quote him. He said this, This wish to preserve human life as we know it, even at the cost of dying, is profoundly human. We are encoded with the belief that death is the mother of beauty. And we are encoded too with the contradictory determination to remain exactly as we are forever, or at least for just a little bit longer before we go. And in this article, it details all the things that people who have a lot of money are investing in to help them defeat death. At one point, one guy stood up and said, surely now, clearly, it is possible through technology to make death optional. And it detailed how they're spending $8,000 on blood transfusions from young people. Very Twilight-esque. Some are data mining their DNA to kind of work out the predispositions that they have that they need to be mindful of as they get older. Uh, others are doing intermittent fasting uh, so that they might have healthy bodies and others taking anti-aging super pills. I want to preface the talk tonight by showing us that kind of extreme version because here in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, the preacher wants us to reflect on our own personal attitude, how we feel about life moving forward, about us and our bodies getting older. He wants us, he wants to, us to consider uh, our priorities in light of the fact that we are getting older and in light of the life that has been left behind. And so come with me to Ecclesiastes verse 8. He's in a reflective mood and he wraps up some of his observations by this. I'll read from verse 8 down to 10 of chapter 11. He says this, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So the preacher's words are words that our friend Peter Thiel 
seemingly needs to hear, but also words that I think you and I need to hear. Because I have a hunch that if we had the same means, if we had the same influence, if we had the same amount of resourcing and money, we might actually be doing some of the similar things that we might scoff at what those in Silicon Valley are doing. Has anyone been watching the footy lately? And it seems that every single ad break has a promo or an advertisement for Ashley and Martin hair products. Well, the, the amount of active wear that's on the scene. Anyone bought active wear in the last month or two? I mean, that is all the rage these days, even in winter. We try to find whatever we can to improve our life while we have it now and to stop the process of aging. Our culture is bought in to this kind of same idea, this pursuit of trying to remain young forever. Uh, so much so that uh, a Stanford professor... Uh, recently released a study, well, it was a couple of years now, uh, released a study in a book titled, titled Juvenescence, A Cultural History of Our Age, where he looked at all the ways that different cultures had thought about their own age. And he says that for the very first time in human history, the young have become a model of emulation for the older population rather than the other way around. He says that culturally speaking, be that in terms of dress codes, mentality, lifestyles and marketing, the world that we live in is astonishingly youthful and in many respects infantile. So I get the feeling that our culture that we live in now is a little bit like uh, when I go to the gym. Let me tell you about when I go to the gym. Sometimes I go to the gym and... When I go there, it's kind of late at night during the week. And so there aren't kind of the guys that can I do this full time there. It's just the us part timers there who can kind of just sneak it in in the back ends of our week. And so I might go there and I'm there lifting weights and I'm looking in the mirror and I see in the mirror a guy behind me and he's lifting half the weight I am. And I start thinking to myself, man, you know, things are working for me here. And I see another guy over here and his, his technique, he's all jittery. It looks like he's going to get an injury. And I started thinking to myself at that time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of moving on in this fitness thing. Is there an Arnold Classic coming up? Because I, be I might be a chance here. That's sometimes I go to the gym. But then the vast majority of times that I go to the gym, I go when there are a lot of other people around. And that just happens to be massive guys. The majority of people at the gym are far bigger than me. I see them lifting double the amount of weight that I'm lifting. And I look at their form and their slowness and their care and their precision. I think, man, I'm about to get injured. Do I do like? I don't, I don't know how to lift these weights. I feel like, man, I need to buy some more protein because something's not working with my body here. And you see that my own self-assessment of how I'm going is completely tied up in the comparison I'm making with the people that are around me. And in our culture, we live in a culture that has kind of decided to start isolating the elderly. We'll start putting them in gated communities or nursing homes that have limited visiting hours. And we have a government who has to incentivize companies to hire people who are older than 50 or 60. And the airtime on TV, the billboards, the ad campaigns, the airtime's given to those who, who couldn't possibly have a wrinkle on their face, isn't it? And so you can see why youthfulness, where it once used to be kind of the pathway toward adulthood, has now become the goal of adulthood. And it's a pr- profound commentary on our culture. It seems like we're always got to keep up with the Joneses and the Joneses always look a little bit thinner, a little bit younger, a little bit more vitality about them, a little bit more spring in their step. 
and we're just lagging a little bit behind. And this isn't only true of kind of, this isn't all, this isn't just a, a cultural critique, but also this is a self-critique. Because I know in my own human heart, I constantly, at whatever age I find myself to be, have a discontentment about that age. I remember when I was uh, just entering into high school and I looked up to those people who were in year 10. Because if you were 16, you had made it. You were an adult. You knew how to live. You, you had already been to the, the 20 things when you're 16, weekend away. And it just looked like 16-year-olds had life together. And so I expected that when I stepped into year 10, some psychological shift would take place in my mind and suddenly I would feel like I've arrived. And then I got there and I didn't feel any different. And so I, I pushed back that expectation for a psychological shift to 18 and it didn't happen then. And then 21 and so on. It got pushed back later and later. Then in our culture, I just turned 30 a couple of weeks ago. I know I look like I'm 16. But in our culture, you get to 30 and it kind of reverses. No longer are you waiting to become an adult. No longer are you looking forward to growing up. Suddenly you get to your late 20s or your 30s. You're trying to grasp your mid-20s, trying to not let them go. And now every time I do a Wikipedia search for an athlete and I find out that they are younger than me, given all they've accomplished, it is completely depressing. What have I done with my life? I start thinking to myself. And it's as if you get to 30 and the next best thing you have to look forward to is free tram rides with your seniors card. <laughs> is that not true? Can I get an amen from anyone who's getting older? <laughs> but it is worth considering, isn't it? Why are we so discontent at getting older? How do you feel about your age? What does it make you think about the life that has been before you? The past and your upcoming future. It may just be that we are looking at our age, looking at the energy and the vitality that we have, our youthfulness, and setting it up as the place where we're going to tap our meaning and our identity and find our purpose. And then, like, people, like our culture, as we grow older, suddenly it feels like sand slipping through our fingers. And so the words of the preacher here are very relevant for us. He has given us, in these few verses that I read out, three R's to help us think about our own lives. And the first is that he wants us to remember. Remember the fact that as we get older, the longer you are around, the more opportunity there will be to face dark times. That the longer you exist on planet Earth, the more opportunity there will be to suffer the more difficult experiences will accumulate, learn from, but also have to go through and endure. Relational strain, difficult seasons of family life, difficult, difficult times that kind of find that work-life balance that we're always searching for. We will all, at some point, be pulled away. The longer we live, at some point, we'll be pulled away from this kind of youthful facade, this mask of invincibility that we've adopted and be woken up by the difficulty of life. And so for all of us, the preacher says, remember that that's going to happen, and so enjoy the life that you have while you have it. Secondly, he tells us to rejoice, that those here who are young, to rejoice in your youth. And so in verse 9, he essentially says, live and let live. Do, do whatever you like. Live it up. Go skydiving before you have any responsibilities. Invest in speculative shares on the share market before you have a family to take care of or it might impact them. Travel before you only get a few weeks of annual leave per year. 
stay up all night playing Xbox just because you can. You should do that while you're young. But then he has this great disclaimer, doesn't he? He's got this serious disclaimer where he says, hey, just so you know, do, do whatever you like, but God knows and God sees everything you do in your youth. And he will bring it all into judgment. And then finally, thirdly, perhaps most relevant for this text, he wants us to remove vexation. He says, don't get annoyed or frustrated that you're getting older because holding on to your youth is vanity. Holding on to your youth is meaningless. And that last idea has the preacher press in to that thought. He wants to kind of turn the screws there. And so it leads us to our second paragraph, which is in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you'll say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And so the preacher wants to reiterate this point of remembering God, not in spite of, but because aging is inevitable. Death is coming for us, but it's coming very slowly. And we can illustrate this aging process with a real-life case study. My family, I've got a picture of four coombsmen on one couch. Oh, there they are. I told you I've got a picture. There's my little boy, Axel. Cutest baby in the world. Does anyone agree? Is it just me? Yeah, yeah okay. Okay, good. Uh, this is my boy, Axel. Obviously, that's me. And that's my dad. And that is my grandpa. And so Axel is 16 months old. He has skin as smooth as a baby's bottom, literally. Uh, but he doesn't know much in life. He doesn't know the multiplication table. He still poos his pants. He doesn't know much about what's going on. This is kind of the aging process and then then there's me i've kind of gravitated from the the pooing the pants bit and the multiplication table thing uh which is good uh but if my pe education in vce is correct uh now that i'm 30 i have plateaued physically and then slowly but surely when i hit 35 there is a slow decline and no offense to my dad but we can see a little bit of that decline can't we uh my dad is 63 this year uh, and you can see that he's all about the grey hairs. His eyesight has started to kind of go a little bit. And so he has to have the glasses. His golf swing is no longer as nimble as it once was. And so slowly he's got, what has he got? He's got 33 years on me. Uh, but then there is my gramps. He turns 90 in a couple of months, still going strong. Uh, but he is struggling to play tennis anymore. He's killing the lawn bowls team, by the way. But his eyesight is shot. Uh, and so you can kind of see the aging process slowly overtake the Coombsmen and my family. And one way to think about the aging process might just be that uh, Axel would never, ever fall asleep on the couch. I might fall asleep on the couch once a month, my dad once a week, and Gramps every afternoon. <laughs> That's kind of one way to think about it. But that picture represents it slowly. Decade after decade, life happens. Aging happens. It is inevitable. And the pre preacher describes this process in chapter 12. There's this chunky, heavy paragraph that I'll try to, as we go through it, uh, bring out some of the analogy and the illustrations that he's using. Because he wants to uh, set up this picture of a house 
and show us just what happens to our human bodies as we get older. In some ways, it can be quite comical. He writes in verse 3, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, by that he means that your arms will start getting shaky, the strong men are bent, your legs will no longer straighten, the grinders will cease because they are few, your teeth will start to fall out, those who look through the windows are dimmed, your eyesight starts failing, Uh, The doors on the street are shut, your hearing starts to go. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, any little noise when you're older will start to annoy you. Uh, And all the daughters of of song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, your hair goes grey, the grasshopper uh, drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So what the preacher here is trying to do is he's trying to have me think, if we can put that photo back up, try to have me think about the fact that aging is coming. I'm going to get older inevitably. I can't stop it. I can't deny it. I can't ignore it. And so the question that should be plaguing me right now is what am I going to do with the life that I do have? What am I going to do with the energy that I do have? What am I going to do with the time that I have right now? And the answer from the preacher is remember God. Remember God. Remember God while you have the chance to be thinking about your priorities. Remember God while you have the chance to have have the brain that that, that works and considers all that he has done and remembers his faithfulness to us. Remember God, remember your creator in the days of your youth, he says. And so this text is a wake-up call to us. He's trying to shake those of us who are young adults out of the kind of the fleeting nature of our young adultus young adultishness and he wants us to start using our time our energy our our vitality for god to remember him and so essentially the preacher says hey don't waste your youthful energy don't waste the fact that you are mobile with your body that you haven't yet pulled a hammy as you walk up the stairs don't waste the fact that you have this, this mind that works and that ticks over and hasn't yet forgotten things. Don't waste the fact that your senses are still, for most of us, working functionally. Don't waste the passion that you have, the vitality that you have. Don't waste it on just trying to extend this stage of life. Don't waste it on folly with which you will regret Don't waste the strength that you have clinging to a life that is passing by. Use it for God. Turn it toward God. Remember God today. And the preacher concludes in verse 8, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. It's vanity. Anti-aging creams are vanity. Ashley and Martin hair products... I hope no one works for that company. A vanity. <laughs> Data mining your DNA is vanity. Spending your most energetic years saving for your less energetic years is vanity. Death is coming. For some, very quickly. 
whether through suffering or accident, but for most, statistically, very, very slowly, so slowly that we're prone to forget about it. We're prone to ignore it and forget that it's there. And so the preacher wants to remind us of our fallibility, that life is a vapour, that life under the sun is but vanity. And so what are you going to do with the time that you do have? How are you going to set priorities while you still have the wits about you to set priorities? What are you going to do with your life as you're thinking about what I should do with my life? What are you going to be when you get older as you now consider? What's going to be your answer as you consider that question? What do I want to be when I'm older? The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is that those priorities should totally shift radically away from perhaps the pool of our culture, the pool even of our own human heart, toward the God to whom we will answer. Back in March, a couple of months ago, you may have heard of it, a new podcast uh, arrived on the scene. Does anyone podcast? These days, podcasts have kind of grown in popularity, but there was this new podcast called S-Town from the creators of the very popular podcast, Serial. And it was a story about a horologist. A horologist is someone who restores ancient clocks, a guy named John B. McLemore. And in the opening of this uh, series, which was quite captivating, in the very first episode, I was struck by what the narrator explained about horology, about how these guys go about fixing these ancient clocks. He says that when an ancient clock breaks, a clock that's been telling time maybe for 200, 300 years, uh, fixing it can be a real puzzle because sometimes these clocks were handmade, well, they're always handmade by someone, but sometimes they might tick with a pendulum. Other times they might, pick, might have a spring, other times a pulley system. Other times they might have bells that are supposed to strike the hour or a bird that pops out and goes, cuckoo, that kind of thing. Uh, there can be hundreds and hundreds of tiny, little, minuscule pieces that each of them needs to work in the perfect way and interact with one another, the other hundreds of pieces, together for the whole thing to work properly. And to make the job even trickier, over those 200 or 300 years, you could never tell what other work had been done and what was original and what was uh, something that had been fixed. And so uh, this all accumulates over the hundreds of years and you could never tell how to uh, fix it. And so entire portions of a clock might go missing, and you couldn't know for sure because there wasn't a manual that would come with it. There weren't any diagrams or that kind of thing. The horologists would have to do their work by hand and eye. And he says this towards the end. A clock that old doesn't come with a manual, so instead the few people left in the world would, who know how to do this kind of work often rely on what are called witness marks to guide their way. A witness mark could be a small dent, a hole that once held a screw, Actual impressions and outlines and discolorations left inside the clock of pieces that might have once been it. And they are clues to what was in the clockmaker's mind when he first created the thing. And that description reminded me uh, of the message of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes itself, I don't know if you've read it, but it doesn't make a great manual to life. At times it's incredibly, incredibly vague. Other times frustrating. Other times just gets you down about the reality of evil and suffering and meaninglessness in the world. But the big idea of Ecclesiastes is that all of us who live under the sun, all of us who live on this planet Earth, we've got a witness mark in our soul. That we have a hole in our own soul, an impression, an outline, a discoloration inside of us that shows us that something that was meant to fill our lives has been lost. The yearnings of 
Peter Thiel and those in Silicon Valley to live forever, all the way down to those of us here uh, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne who also, a bit more subtly, want to also live forever. The attempts of our world to find the perfect anti-aging cream to stop the inevitable, the pull of our own hearts to stop ourselves from getting older. Actually, they're just signs that we have a witness mark, that we have a hole, that we were made for something more, that we were made for something that is meant to last forever, that we were made for something eternal, namely to live forever with full and lasting satisfaction with God himself. And the beautiful thing we know is, and we're reminded of as we read this passage, if we know the story of the Bible, it is that though this preacher is telling us, hey, remember God, remember your creator in the days of your youth, the beautiful thing is that in the gospel we know that God himself, long before we're called to remember him, he remembered us. And that he came down to us in his son, Jesus. And that he lived the perfect life with perfect priorities, with a perfect memory of his creator, his father, and lived with perfect righteousness so that he might die unjustly in our place for our sin and gift us with that perfect life. He did young adulthood perfectly in your place for you. And the gospel tells us that Jesus came, that God remembered us by sending him so that he might come and seek and save those of us who were lost, even before we knew that we would ever be lost, so that he might win us back and that he might fill that witness mark in our soul, that he might fill, color in that discoloration, fill that hole in our heart so that we might be able to remember him. And so we're reminded by Ecclesiastes that there are so many times, even this week coming, where you're going to forget your creator. There are many times where you're going to feel a great amount of pressure and you're not going to go to him, you're going to go to something else. And yet in the gospel we know that even in spite of that, still we are found, still we are loved in Christ. And that if you put your trust in Jesus afresh tonight, that we can have full and lasting satisfaction in him, yes, tempered by the meaninglessness and the suffering of this present life, but one day to be filled and full forever with him in eternity. And so those, I've come here tonight to remind us and to echo the words of the preacher, to say to us who, those of us who are getting older, i.e. all of us, to remember our creator while we can remember, to remember our creator while we have the energy and the vitality to do so. When Jesus did walk on the earth, there's a moment where he's uh, preaching and teaching. He's telling others about himself. And he says and turns to them, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than the one who wrote this wisdom in this book. Someone greater than the one who's here telling us to remember our Creator. Someone greater than the one who kind of looked around all the world and, and brought in all the women that he could and brought in all the money that he could and brought in all the power that he could and brought in all the influence that he could and still said, hey, it's meaningless. Hey, someone greater than he has come, Jesus, and he's come to be our king and he's come to be the one who fills our souls and our hearts and he calls us tonight to come to him and to submit our lives to him or to commit our lives while we have them to him. And so tonight, give Jesus 
the life that you have. Give Jesus the energy that you have. Give Jesus the priorities that you can make. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are Lord and we are not. We thank you that you have come. In all your grace and in all your glory, you entered into the brokenness of this world and you want to enter into the brokenness of our lives and and the dissatisfaction that we might even have even with our own identities and our own bodies and our own aging. Lord, I pray that we might find rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would come and, and turn our hearts toward you afresh, that any sense of dissatisfaction in our spirit and in our soul that wants to kind of walk the tightrope between you and the world, Lord, would your Holy Spirit blow us toward you and draw us toward you? Would we commit again and afresh tonight, whether for the first time or whether for the hundredth time, to remember you, to remember you tonight, to remember you this week, to remember you with our lives? Lord, we confess that we can't do that in and of our own strength. We can't do that and conjure that kind of commitment and faithfulness up in and of ourselves. And so we need you, Lord. And we need you to come and capture us afresh with the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you that you are and you are alone, the only one who satisfies. So help us to trust in you, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.